You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunnett. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from ESPN.com, Chad Dundas, and sitting alongside me, as always, your friend and mine, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how are you doing this week? Doing all right. Fresh back from San Jose. Yeah, I was going to say, you just got back from San Jose. You were there to take in the UFC on Fox 7. Uh, how was that? Was there a manifestation in the streets or anything like that? No manifestations. Also, uh, wasn't snowing in San Jose. Uh, then I come back here to this shit. It's April. It's April. Yeah, I know we had a serious blizzard yesterday. Fortunately, since this is Montana, today it's like 60 degrees and all the snow melted. That's just how we do, I guess. Yeah, but uh, no manifestations in the streets in San Jose. Uh, San Jose, always a great fight town. I mean, I think Strikeforce doesn't get credit for, if not building that strong uh, MMA fan base in San Jose, at least uh, you know nurturing it, because... San Jose is one of my favorite places to go see a fight. Yeah, San Jose is uh, is pretty cool, actually. I went there last year uh, to to watch a fight, and I was surprised. Well, I guess not surprised, but like I guess I'd never really considered San Jose as a place. And then it, it's it's pretty cool. They got a nice little downtown area there that's right by the HP Pavilion with uh, with lots of cool restaurants and stuff. And and uh, I don't know where you stayed. When I stayed there, it was definitely within walking distance, so you could yeah. just kind of stroll through downtown uh, on your way to and from the arena. Uh, after uh, Tom Lawler lost his fight, and I saw him just drunk as hell, but no throwing up out on the streets after <laughs> well, the event was over. And there's, was a, there's still that video out there of Fabricio Verdum uh, drunk as hell and looking close to throwing up <laughs> after he beat Fedor in San Jose, and he's just wandering down the street. And that's the one where uh, we all got to see him and his team pull a Gracie train into the hotel bar after he submitted Fedor, and the look on the bartender's face was just like immediately... I quit. <laughs> Forget this. That only would have been cooler if it was a Gracie train, including all of the president. <laughs> Still not sure how that would work. As usual, this week's co-main event podcast comes to you in three rounds. In round number one, there used to be a time I thought all we had to do to find out who was the best lightweight in the world was to get them all in the same organization and have them fight. Simplistic of you. Now I'm not so sure. Yeah. In round number two... So I suppose everybody's just going to act like they've never seen a heavyweight fight before, huh? What'd you expect? Daniel Cormier and Frank Mir to come out and do fucking cartwheels? Well, Daniel Cormier did like a fucking jumping, leaping kick out of some kung fu movie shit. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. Okay, so come on. In round number three, we're six days removed from finding out just how badly John Jones is going to beat the shit out of Chael Sonnen at UFC 159. But does anybody care? Ben... This week's music is something I'm particularly excited about. Okay. The music this week comes to us from CME listener Tommy Sundquist. Or Sundquist. I'm never sure how you're supposed to pronounce those uh, Scandinavian names when they have like a K and a V right next to each other. Tommy S. Tommy S. And he's got a hardcore punk band called Skunks. S-K-U-N-X. They are from Sweden. And they're going to do the music for us today. If you like what you hear from them, you can find more of their stuff at uh, Facebook slash Skunks Hardcore. Have we reached a point where we again S K U N X? We will never again use our own music. Is that what's come? Well, to? as long as people keep sending us stuff, yeah. I, don't, I, mean, I keep waiting for us to reach the limit of like how many listeners do we have that have bands or rap crews or something. We're just big in the industry, man. Big in the music industry, <laughs> I guess we are. People love our shit. As this podcast slowly transitions to be an underground music podcast, I hope we retain at least some of our listeners. Uh, right now, like we always do about this time. Let's do some listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Justice Latvala, who writes, So, in the mean streets of the 209, where if they would fight to the death, Nick Diaz would always be the champ, is it still okay to throw in the towel? Do you know who threw the towel? You couldn't tell from TV. On a more serious note, do you think the Diaz brothers would benefit from changing the camp? Bitch slaps and jujitsu got them this far, but now it seems that anyone with good kicks and or better wrestling can have a great day against them. What about the punk? I've always liked Josh Thompson, but can't really see him matching up well against Benson Henderson. Do you think he could beat soon-to-be-married-through-Jesus-Christer-Henderson? 
It's a lot of questions. It is a lot of questions. Kind of went off the rails there toward the end, but but I, f- I feel like the initial question is interesting because you know, we did see the towel get thrown in in the yeah. Nate Diaz Josh Thompson fight. Does it make you scared, homie, if you threw in the towel? Well, and I guess you know I've seen some reports that that Nick Diaz threw in the towel. Yeah, you couldn't is- see from from press row because of the position of the, the Diaz's corner. Uh, you could not see uh, who threw it in, uh, but. Uh, Greg Savage from Share Dogs said he talked to. Uh, here's where we get into the telephone game. Second and third hand he, he, accounts. He, t- he talked to Gilbert Melendez's girlfriend. Oh uh, wow! No, this said, is getting. Who said she saw Nick throw in the towel? And that's. I mean, it's one of those things where even if Nick hadn't thrown it, it uh, people want that to be the case because that's the better story. You know, it's his brother uh, getting the shit kicked out of him. I mean, it didn't seem like it was going to matter. Like, I don't think the ref, no, uh, referee ref Mike totally Beltran didn't. with his crazy, crazy mustache, just best guy in mixed martial arts, <laughs> Mike Beltran, the guy, the guy with the mustache, most likely to be used as a paintbrush on accident. Uh, he, he did not seem to see the towel no. when he made the decision to stop it. So it didn't seem like it was really going to matter. Um, but it does make for like a more interesting conversation piece for us. If, it's the dude's brother who is like, I, I've seen enough and throws in that, especially when it's your brother and he's, you know, noted MMA hard ass Nick Diaz. Well, here's the thing I thought, though. I totally believe that it could be Nick Diaz because I think it plays into that weird part of Nick Diaz's personality where he doesn't want anyone to get hurt in an MMA fight. We've seen that from him, you know, a lot in the past where he talks about how. If George St. Pierre really wants to hurt him in a fight, like that makes him worried about George St. Pierre's sanity. Yeah, it makes him it's, sad. Yeah. So I, I can totally understand if, if that part of Nick Diaz's personality, especially since it was, it was his brother in there, didn't want to see any more harm come to Nate Diaz. Although having the towel thrown in, it's not something that we see a lot in no. MMA. I feel like that's something that typically only happens in Rocky fights. No, I mean, you get the slow motion I, shot of I, I, Apollo Creed and the towel throw the damn towel. hitting the ground at the same time. Throw the damn towel. I think, though, it makes sense that it doesn't happen that much in MMA because in MMA, if you get dropped, the dude jumps on your head. Uh, and so it's not that same kind of thing where a guy can get dropped in a boxing match and get up and clearly still be woozy or like be out on his feet and be leaning up against the ropes. And, you know, in MMA, a little, a momentary lapse in like consciousness or defense and you're kind of done most of the time. So not really a chance to throw that towel. And I mean, let's be honest, Nate Nate Diaz was clearly done there. Yeah. And to answer the second half of Justice's question, man, Josh Thompson is one of those dudes where when he's healthy and on point and motivated, he's good. He yeah. ain't no joke. It harkens me back to last year when when he fought uh, Gilbert Melendez for like the fifth or sixth thousandth time. Yeah. People, people were like, oh, man, not impressed with Gilbert Melendez's performance. And I was just like, dude, Josh Thompson is tough. He is not a joke. Yeah. And he could do a lot of things well. But you're right that the thing with him is just can he get healthy and stay healthy? Because, man, he has struggled with so many injuries. And it's kind of amazing that he's pushed through it to get to where he is now. Yeah, he broke that same leg a number of times. (laughs) Isn't that right? I, I mean, I've seen him at the AKA gym before where even just him doing a little bit of like sparring and drills and stuff, it looked like he was going to fall apart, fall into just a pile of, of human limbs uh, right there on the floor at any moment. Yeah. If he was a racehorse, he certainly would have been put down by now. <laughs> so it's good. It feel, It's a feel-good story, I think, to see Josh Thompson yeah. and out a, there doing well for himself. Kind of a negative story for racehorses. The second question this week comes to us from Raphael Delorme. Concerning the Bendo versus Melendez decision, how do you feel about Wade Vieira, a Caesar Gracie Jiu-Jitsu brown belt and head instructor at a Caesar Gracie Jiu-Jitsu affiliated school being the only judge who scored the fight for Melendez? Should we be more enraged at Vieira for accepting the, to judge the fight or the, at the California State Athletic Commission for not noticing such a clear conflict of interest? Well, the answer to that second question, I think, is pretty easy. <laughs> yes, yeah, that, that one's on the commission. Uh, you know, and this isn't one of those things where it was obvious in one direction and the, the Gracie team Homer threw it over for Melendez. I mean, yeah, yeah, very close fight. I feel like that's not the notable thing yeah. here. The notable thing is not necessarily that, uh, Wade Vieira voted or cast his ballot, I guess, for, for Gilbert Melendez. The notable thing is that that dude would even be in that position. Yeah. And that, how does that happen? I have how, no idea. How do you not notice that? How does, how does that not come to somebody's? Cause I mean, that seems like, you don't really have to do like extensive background checks, I would think, on judges. You know, it's not like 
we're trying to weed out all the shoplifters. But hey, the guys who have a connection, like a pretty solid connection to one of the camps involved in the main event, probably shouldn't be judging the main event. I mean, just just yeah. for the sake of appearances, if nothing else. It's one of those things, again, that makes me think that it, that that how people are always saying we should have more ex-fighters and, and trainers and stuff like that become judges because they feel like it would, it would clear up a lot of the, the poor judging in the sport. And maybe that's true, but I think this is an example where you see like – if all of the dudes that compete in this sport have have ties to other dudes who compete in the sport, it's a very small world. So to me, it, it's it's you know not necessarily an easy fix yeah. to try to go that route because you're always going to have somebody with some connection. Maybe you know one guy might have beef with some other guy for something right. that happened at a party ten years ago, yeah, like yeah. like I do. <laughs> tons of beef with tons of guys. Some some guys like Chad Dennis might just hold on to that stuff for way too long. Or you, there's even just the problem with that of if you get a guy who is mainly a jujitsu guy in his career, then what does does he side with jujitsu guys more often? If the guy was, you know, some Dutch kickboxer, is he all about the leg kicks? You, you know, there's, you can always make that argument. But at the same time, uh, I don't know if it's a great fix either to just keep using the same dudes over and over again when uh, we've kind of established that we all think MMA judging sucks. <laughs> that, well, that is a good point, too. The next uh, piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jeff Smith. Is it just me, or do most people in and around MMA kind of have a general distaste for Benson Henderson? It's not that he's a hated guy or anything. He seems more like the guy that nobody wanted to show up to a party, and when he walks in the front door, receives a collective roll of the eyes. I would say it goes beyond the fact that he's just a decision fighter, but I can't really pinpoint it. What say you, fine gentlemen? Let me say the first thing that I that I want to say is that I hate the idea that the phrase decision fighter could be a thing. But go ahead. I don't know. I think the, that, that that is a thing. It was sort of is, but like Ben Henderson, he all seven of his UFC fights have been decisions, but only two of his six WEC fights were decisions. So I feel like it's unfair to uh, to brand a guy who had been a champion in another organization and had four stoppages out of six fights as a quote unquote decision fighter. And it also, you know, there's a, it seems to it doesn't seem to be positive. You could, it's not a compliment, right? No, no one is trying to compliment you when they say that. But I think that refers not just to like the result of your fights ending in decision. I think it refers a lot to style. Like when we watch Ben Henderson fighting, there's n really very few moments where I'm like, he looks like he's really trying to end this one or he's close to ending it or he's really going after the, like you never see him looking like he's really just going all out for the finish. Yeah, no, I, I understand what that means. I just, you know, I, as I've said before on this podcast, Many times before, I don't like the uh, the stigma against decisions in this no, sport. I, mean, I feel like I just want a dude to be dominant. If a guy can go out there and be dominant for 25 minutes and still win by decision, I'm totally cool with it. I think maybe the problem with Ben Henderson is that he hasn't necessarily been dominant, and I assume that is a thing we will talk about in round number yes, one. Yes, I'm sure it is. As for the thing about whether people dislike him or not, I mean, a lot of people seem to really, really love them some Benson Henderson. I mean, that, I, I'm sure that there are some people out there. I mean, it doesn't, he doesn't come off well when he's in San Jose winning a really narrow decision over a Bay Area fighter. I mean, obviously the local crowd is not going to be on his side there. So that comes off. So I, I mean, I, I hear from people on Twitter and, and through email and stuff who, who are big Benson Henderson fans. So it's not like he doesn't have a fan base out there. I think the thing though that, that this question asker is reacting to is, there's something a little weird about him. Yeah, there is. And like the like marriage proposal in the cage that we saw this past weekend is, is one of those things where, yeah. you, where you, it really makes you wonder because, you know, when I was working for NBCSports.com and, and, and covering a lot of the WEC because it used to be versus, that's where the WEC was, was shown. And what was that for like six weeks where that was, there was that crossover there? Yeah. Well, it was, it was, I used to work for versus.com as well. If, if that makes you feel better. <laughs> oh about yeah. My, I feel a lot better. Makes me, makes you feel better about my tenure there. Uh, you know, I interviewed Ben Henderson a few times. He always seemed like a nice guy. I really like him as a fighter. I think that, uh, you know, his, his skills and his size and speed and, and his smarts make him a really good and difficult to fight lightweight. But I do agree with you that at times we see like little glimpses of him where it seems like, uh, maybe there's parts of this guy's personality that seem insufferable when viewed through the lens of, of like this kind of quasi celebrity that he has. Yeah, the the marriage proposal thing was weird. Again, I'm I'm sure we're going to talk more about that. Um, you know, he fought with a toothpick in his mouth Again, in the last weird. one. Again, kind of a weird, weird thing to do. Even just little moments, like 
I don't know if you saw at the weigh-in, you know, they do the thing, the main event guys do the stare down after they weigh in, and then they both turn and face out for the cameras. And it's this photo op moment where you're both turning and facing out, you know, let everybody get a good look at you before the fight. Gilbert Melendez knows what to do, puts his hands up in the air, the whole, you know, rocky look. And and Benson Henderson, uh, since he's just weighed in, you know, and he's just cut weight, decides to chug a water bottle throughout the entire ass part of this part of the photo op. He's chugging a water bottle, so there's this water bottle tipped up in front of his face, covering up his entire face while he points at various points in the crowd. Oh, wow. Um, unclear why. And it's like, you realize that this was a, a photo op, right? And you covered your face with something. And maybe it's like, he, maybe he does his photo ops in the cage. Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> That's got to be it. And you know, stuff like that where you're like, yeah, I mean, no one's going to make a big deal out of that. It's not like, it doesn't make you an asshole for doing that. It's just a little weird. You know, and there's a bunch of little weirds. And Dana White was talking about the marriage proposal thing. He said that Benson Henderson came to him backstage well before the fight and was like, hey, I want to propose to my girl after the fight. Can I do it? And Dana checked with the people in the production truck and they were like, yeah, sure. Um, and he said, we sat there for like 15 minutes and talked about it. And, you know, meanwhile, all the other fighters are trying to get get their game face on. And he was like, yeah, it was just kind of – he was interesting, I think is what Dana White said. The way when you mean weird – about yeah. somebody who you're like, oh, he's an interesting dude. But hey, let's say complimentary heads up move for Ben Henderson to ask Dana White if he could do that because, you know, we've seen some guys like wear speedos to the cage and stuff like that <laughs> and get themselves in some trouble. So I think it was a good idea for him to to check with the brass yeah. before he decided to uh, to do that. Yeah, I still don't know if it was a great time, you know, at the end of the fight to yeah. to pull out the box with the ring in it or whatever. But whatever, man, you know, to what, each his own. Whatever, indeed. Definitely stacks the odds in your favor. She's not going to say no in that situation. Well, I mean, if she does say no at that point, then uh, she gets her own reality show instantly. <laughs> the last bit of listener mail comes to us from Dano. He writes, why is everybody acting like making Johnny Hendricks wait his turn for a title shot is the crime of the century? I'm not talking about Johnny himself. I know why he keeps talking about it, even though I think it's starting to make him look like a petulant child in the toy aisle of a Walmart. Ooh. He wants that belt so he can start making that passive income, maybe land the role as chief in the next Doom Patrol movie. I get that. But I'm talking about people like me and you, the fans and the media. Since when does a six-fight win streak justify the level of outcry this has received? This is the welterweight division we're talking about. This isn't the middleweight division where, quote, any bum with a plane ticket to Ohio, end quote, can get a title shot in the words of Chael Sonnen. Carlos had a five-fight streak. Alves had a seven-fight streak. And Fitch had an eight-fight streak in the UFC before they got their shot. And I don't remember people crying foul then the way they are now. Am I remembering wrong? Is this situation different somehow? Discuss. First of all, what's a Doom Patrol? I have no idea what Doom Patrol is. Is that a real thing even? It's a group of surfers, I think. <laughs> Must be. That's what okay. it sounds like to me. Group of surfers. Um, the thing is, Johnny Hendricks has waited his turn. Yeah, there's no argument that can be made that doesn't make Johnny Hendricks the number one contender to the welterweight title. I think the problem, that the, the thing that people are reacting to is... It feels like Johnny Hendricks has waited and and proved it. Like there's no reason why he should have to do something more at this point to earn a welterweight title shot. And then instead of putting the welterweight title on the line, we're talking about either doing this Anderson Silva super fight with GSP or GSP running off to make movies. Right. Like those are the, that's the thing. It's not like you know, if there was a more deserving welterweight and they decided to go with him first, I don't think people would be complaining about it. But, hey, we want to see the welterweight title be defended against a welterweight. And Johnny Hendricks has clearly earned that right at this point. Yeah, plus I think uh, Johnny Hendricks is really easy to like. I think also he's been very, very dominant in some of his earlier fights. And I think as a result of, of at least that second thing, a lot of people think he could give George St. Pierre a really interesting and entertaining fight. And I think that they don't want to miss out on that uh, just to have George St. Pierre move up to middleweight and become probably a, a middle of the pack 185 pounder. Yeah, no, that is like style wise, Johnny Hendricks does seem to present something a little bit new for GSP. And so people do want to see that challenge, especially I think with GSP, who we talked about before, always seems to know the right thing to do at the right time. So you got to feel like he's going to be smart enough to retire somewhat soon, right? And I think we all see that on the horizon. And so we kind of want to 
get some of the, there's an interesting fight out there. We want to get it in there before he decides to walk away because he seems like there's no way he's going to be the dude who sticks around into his forties. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question or comment for the co-main event podcast in the future, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comaineventpodcast.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. As for right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Benson Henderson and Gilbert Melendez had a very close and awesome fight on Saturday at the UFC on Fox 7 that was very much in keeping with the many awesome and very, very close fights we've seen at the top of the lightweight division, really going back a couple of years now. Ben, let's just start here. I fully recognize that this fight was competitive enough that the scores could have gone either which way, but... I thought Gilbert Melendez won. What did you think? I thought he won too. And yeah. a a quick polling uh, around press row after the fight, most media members it seemed had it for Gilbert. So yeah, I thought he won forty eight forty seven. I thought that he started out really well, won the first two rounds, and then uh, kind of got caught by. Uh, I mean, Ben Henderson caught up to him in the third and the fourth, and then the fifth round I thought was really, really close, but I gave it to Melendez just by just by a hair. And I actually thought, I mean, I thought he was going to win when they were yeah. announcing the the decision. And you know, when Bruce Buffer does that pregnant pause mm-hmm. before he lets you know if he's going to say still or new, I thought for sure. Well, not for sure, but I had an inkling Gilbert Melendez was going to win. When he didn't win, I was surprised. And so I think it took me a couple minutes to realize this. But as I was contemplating it, I guess later on that evening, I realized, motherfucker, I have individually scored Ben Henderson at one and three in his four UFC title fights. I mean, this is the thing I think that's hurting Ben Henderson right now is that you could make an argument that he has lost three of his last four. And yet he's the UFC lightweight champion. Well, not only that, but on paper, the dude has a fairly incredible resume right now. He's 7-0 and in the UFC. He's 4-0 and in UFC title fights. This weekend, he tied BJ Penn's record for three consecutive lightweight title defenses. I mean, if you're going to have a conversation about who's the greatest UFC lightweight of all time, at this point, at least on paper, you necessarily have to include Ben Henderson in that conversation. Except... That I think he lost one of his last four fights. You have to include him in the conversation unless you've actually seen the fights. If you saw the fights and then if you saw BJ Penn's title defenses where he was just wrecking fools, then you you don't really include him in that same conversation because he hasn't had those kind of performances. And it's, it's a weird thing, I think, when you're the champion and you're squeaking by on decisions. Because it's like with GSP where... Yeah, he's winning decisions and people are, are getting upset about it. But the thing they're getting upset about in a way is that he's just dominating people for like all five rounds and not finishing them. And so they look at that and say, well, look, you're clearly so much better than these people. Why can't you just go ahead and give that extra little effort or take that extra chance to, to put them away? And with Henderson, it seems like he's going out there at, from the very beginning just thinking, I got to win one round at a time and then, you know. All I have to do is win three rounds here, and I get my hand raised. And that seems like his strategy. You can see him doing it in the fights where it's like a little alarm goes off in his head when there's 45 seconds left in the round. He's like, okay, time to get busy. Time to steal this one. I know how the judges think. And it works. I mean, judges seem to like him. At least they like him a little bit better than the other guy. Yeah, and I felt like the initial response that I saw on Twitter seemed to indicate that most people thought Gilbert Melendez won. Now, I think that that opinion seems to have cooled off a little bit in the day or two since the actual fight. I think you think the, so? I do. Yeah. You don't think I, it's just because it's so close that we all realize in MMA it gets that close? Shit, man. You can't complain when it's that close. No, I think that's part of it, especially in the lightweight division where I think we've all sort of collectively decided we're going to let these close ones go because the alternative <laughs> is just horrific, yeah. right? You the alternative just would just keep us up nights. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, Maybe in another weight weight class, Gilbert Melendez gets an immediate title or immediate rematch, which I think sort of deserve it in this case. But in in lightweight, at lightweight, like you just pointed out, we've decided close enough, we're going to let these ones go. But I mean, I think that it's cooled off a little bit just because the fight metric stats came out and they had uh, 
Ben Henderson crafting a pretty sizable striking advantage. And we actually got a couple of emails about that to the podcast this week that I thought about using, but then I figured we would talk about it during the round. Um, and it's true. He, he you know, the, the stats did show that, that he crafted a, a fairly, uh, uh, significant striking advantage, but I just feel like in MMA, we're still at this point where stats don't really tell the tale of a fight. And I don't mean to say that in a way that, that, that is, is negative toward the dudes who do fight metric because I like those guys. I respect them. I think in a lot of ways, they're trying to do yeoman's work by just yeah. trying to come up with a way to quantify this crazy sport. But, uh, it's not perfect yet. And at this point, I find that very rarely do stats alone tell the tale. I think that the, that, that fights, that MMA fights, and especially a fight like this one is so dynamic and there's so much stuff going on in the cage that you can almost never really get a good idea of what happened just by looking at two tallies, you know, two, two totals of punches landed yeah. or whatever. Well, and maybe it's like what you were saying, like, you would only think that it was that big of a disparity unless you actually watched the fight. Yeah. Well, and I also think that the whole significant strikes thing, I don't know how well that works for MMA because it seems like what a significant strike is anything other than a jab, right? And there's so many different... Oh, yeah, the problem with that is it's completely subjective. Like, who yeah. decides if it's significant or not? The, there's so many different kinds of strikes that you can throw in MMA. So it makes it tough to just quantify that stuff uh, with such limited categories. And I mean, I also think that there's, even though we would make fun of phrases like octagon control, uh, there's something to be said for that. Uh, something to be said for the guy who is standing in the middle following the other dude around as the other dude circles away from him and tucks his hair behind his ears. You know, that I, I, ouch. I'm just saying, I think that deserves to be factored in somewhere. But again, the thing is with judging and when it comes to either, you know, how the judges score it, how people at home score it, how people at, on, in the media score it, we're watching two dudes fight for five minutes and then at the end being like, I don't know, I give it to this guy. And when it's that close for, for all round, all five rounds, there's always going to be that thing where, hey, maybe you could have been talked into giving round five to, to Henderson. I mean, it was, it's not unthinkable. So we kind of have to acknowledge when we get in that situation, like, well, hey, somebody's going to feel screwed and, and kind of rightly so. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want this round to come off like it's a huge, uh, uh, dump fest on, on Benson Henderson, because like we said during listener mail, I really like the guy as a fighter. I think he's incredibly talented. And I think that he sort of looks like the prototype for what successful lightweights of the future might look like, you know, just cause he's super big and he moves really well. He's got really well-rounded skills. He's, he's smart. He seems to walk around with a chip on his shoulder, which I think is, is a positive for guys, uh, you know, in this line of work. But if anything, I saw this fight as a really like a validating performance from Gilbert Melendez, because like I said, after the Josh Thompson fight, you know, people would be like, oh, I wasn't impressed with what Melendez did. And we would, you know, we got emails to this podcast and I would encounter people on chat rooms and, and internet commenters or whatever, who would be like, and the general, the general tenor of it was always like, do you really think Gilbert Melendez is one of the top five lightweights in the world? And at this point, I'd say, fuck, yeah, of course I do. I think that he came out and showed us that that's a fact at this point. Yeah, and he was saying before this fight how he felt like, you know, the hardcore people knew who he was and knew what it meant to be Strike Force champion for as long as he was, but that to the casual fan tuning in on Fox, uh, he felt like they would have no idea that he was basically zero and zero and that you win this fight and it validates everything that you've done. And if you don't, then, you know, you're just another guy who who tried and failed at the lightweight crown. I, I do think that this fight, you know, him, that that performance coming as close as he did, and it could have so easily gone in his favor, uh, which would have made us think about the last few years of his career completely differently if Gilbert Melendez was sitting around as UFC lightweight champ right now. You know, and I think he kind of still deserves that because it was that close. You know, but at the same time, Dana White made a valid point, I thought, that in that fifth round, where both guys have to know that it's close, uh, nobody was really like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win this round. Both of them seemed to think that they had a lead that they were protecting, uh, which if you're Gilbert Melendez, I don't know how you're not kicking yourself about that right now, how you're not looking back at that round and thinking, man, if I'd have just gone after him a little more and, and tried uh, a little harder to, to make sure that I, I stood out in that round, maybe I'm UFC champion right now. Yeah. Either that or they were both just tired. 
Okay, which fine. I think could also be an explanation. But let's talk about this because this is certainly not the first really, really close lightweight title fight that we have seen recently. We saw, you know, the pair of fights from, with Benson Henderson and Frankie Edgar, and before that, the the fights between Frankie Edgar and, and uh, Gray Maynard. And I think for a while we tried to blame that on Frankie Edgar, yeah. just being like, well, you know, he's so small and he has this kind of uh, buzzing mosquito fighting style where he just kind of like zips in and zips out and, and, and lands a couple of punches. But at this point, it certainly looks like Benson Henderson is well on his way to having that same sort of reputation of being this guy who gets himself into these really, really close fights. Is this a commentary on a, I guess the incredible depth of the lightweight division or is it more of a problem than that? Like, cause if you asked me right now, Who's the best lightweight in the world? I would have no idea what to tell you. It could be Ben Henderson. It could be Gilbert Melendez. It could be Frankie Edgar, for all we know. Or hell, it, it could be somebody like Michael Chandler. I really have no idea, which is why we said in the intro, you know, I thought if you got all these guys together and had them fight, it would give us a clear picture. Now, I just have no idea because all of these fights that we've seen between guys that at the time we considered the two best lightweights in the world have been so damn close that I don't even think we got a decisive victor in, in any of them. Yeah, it's like at best we got a little more data from which to extrapolate a guess as to who might be the best lightweight in the world. You know, I think some of it has to be the depth of the division. I mean, that's a, one of the good things and bad things about lightweight is there's so many talented guys there uh, that sometimes it can feel like, you know, there's just this like log jam at the top and you just can keep cycling guys through there. Another reason why we don't want to just keep doing immediate rematches to try and settle this shit. Cause also who knows if we're even going to get any closer the second time right. around, uh, it might just be in the same situation. So uh, I think that's part of it. I also think though that, I mean, I think there's some part of it where the, it gets into this mindset of, well, if you're not going to finish the guy, if you don't think that you can finish the guy, then you have to focus on fighting that way to make sure you win the rounds. Because if you get down, you know, if you get into the fourth round and the guy is up three, nothing on you, then you're kind of screwed. If you don't think you have the ability to go out there and finish him, you know, and Benson Henderson seems to have crafted a really smart style for, how to to win rounds or at least be close enough in the round that he has a shot at winning it. Uh, but I think as part of that style, he he doesn't have that that uh, like reckless drive to go in there and kind of finish the guy. I think that's one of the things he has to give up in order to successfully apply that style. All right, well, let's do tips for a well-rounded fight fan, and then we'll move on to round number two. This is a part of the program that we haven't done in an awful long time, but it's it's when Ben and 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 I have encountered some things in our in our lives, uh, non MMA related, but stuff that we feel like the listening audience might enjoy. So we share it with you, um, Ben. This week, my tip for a well-rounded fight fan is a documentary that I actually first heard about from your wife. Uh, saying that I should watch it. And then I exchanged some messages with uh, CME listener Jared Crowley on the internet, who also said it was awesome and I should watch it. So I watched it and it was awesome. And I don't want to say too much about it because I feel like one of the things that it has going for it is if you come into it blind, it turns out to be so weird and creepy that it's awesome. But it's a documentary called The Imposter. It's available on Netflix uh, streaming. You can go there, search for it, watch it at home. Man, it's weird and also good. Yes, it is. Yes, I've also seen that. And in a little bit of turnabout here on you, my Tips for Well-Wounded Fight Man is going to be something I heard about from you, but which you heard about from your wife. Uh, True. So yeah. basically, both of our wives are essentially the source of these well Tips for Well-Wounded Fight Fan. Mine is the novel, not the movie, but the novel Fletch by Gregory McDonald. Uh, I'm sure many of you, if you grew up in the 80s and early 90s, remember the uh, Chevy Chase Fletch films um, and remember it as just being another movie where Chevy Chase showed up and made Chevy Chase facial expressions. Um, you know, okay movies, not changing anybody's life. However, the, the novel Fletch... Uh, is very different in tone and totally awesome. Uh, a really heavy kind of mystery detective genre stuff, only instead of being a detective, Fletch is a uh, kind of ne'er-do-well newspaper reporter, which might be part of why it appeals to me, especially because I love one of the gimmicks that keeps going throughout the book, is that when Fletch encounters people, 
whatever field they're in, he has done a story on it recently, and so they can't wait to tell him what bullshit his story was. Uh, that's something I think we can all relate to. Yeah, that part's true to life. Yeah. No, uh, that, is, that is a good novel, though. Yeah, good novel, and it's like 200 pages of all dialogues. You can read it in an afternoon. I highly recommend going and picking up Fletch, and i uh, I'm also working my way through uh, Confess Fletch. Oh, you're on the, the Confess <laughs> yeah, Fletch the, now. The sequel. All right, well, Fletch and the Imposter. Check those out if you get time. As for now, we're going to go ahead and roll straight into round number two. Well, Chad... Daniel Cormier and Frank Mir had themselves a heated stare down at the weigh-ins on Friday. Got in the cage Saturday for what we thought would be a real firecracker of a heavyweight fight. Uh, and then it turned out to be a real normal of a heavyweight fight. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Cormier contented himself with mostly controlling Frank Mir in the clinch. Uh, opening up every once in a while with shots to the body. Uh, Frank Mir had his best moments when he landed a couple kicks to Daniel Cormier's midsection and then did pretty much nothing else really besides that. Daniel Cormier wins the unanimous decision pretty clearly. You know, beats a, a, a solid guy in Frank Mir in his USA debut. Uh, but, uh, definitely not the, the performance we were expecting after all the hype built up around Daniel Cormier. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't a terrible fight. I think it got no. shit on a lot by uh, by viewers just because it had the terrible misfortune to be a, a rather pedestrian fight marooned on a fight card of otherwise totally awesome fights. Yeah, especially if, I mean, if you got, if you watch the prelims from the very beginning, I mean, just guys are just getting their brains knocked out of their skulls left and right all the way up. And then this. Yeah, and it was a pretty good performance, I thought, from Cormier, especially coming in and fighting a dude who's a, a two-time former champion like Frank Mir. And, and let's be honest, Frank Mir didn't look done. He didn't no. look, you know, out of his league. He looked like a, a serviceable UFC heavyweight in there. Um, and maybe it's a good thing that, that we tapped the brakes a little bit on the Cormier fight because – I think he looks like a very, very good either heavyweight or light heavyweight at this point. Um, I, maybe it's a little bit premature to say he's going to be a, a great fighter in the UFC, but the truth is I really love the guy's skills, uh, in, in terms of, of setting him up for success in the octagon. I mean, he's not necessarily a, a knockout artist, but I think that's okay. And he's not just necessarily going out there and trying to beat people with his takedowns either. Uh, you know, he's out there trying to mix it up. I think he's got great hand speed and, and the thing that really for me kind of puts him over the top is his wrestling and his clinch work because he's got this thing where he can pretty much at any time during the fight because of his Olympic wrestling skills, he can kind of push the reset button. You know, if he, yeah. if he gets in trouble or things start going the way, a way that he doesn't like, he can just kind of grab his opponent, muscle him up against the cage the way we saw Randy Couture do for years and years and years, and then just kind of suffocate their offense. And we saw him do that a couple of times against Frank Mir this weekend. Um, so to me, that maybe it's not the funnest thing in the world to watch, but it's a really valuable skill to have because yeah. if you don't just get knocked the fuck out, you can always, just kind of say, okay, wait a second. Let me push this guy up against the fence, slow things down, get my wits about me, and uh, continue to control this round. I think it's it's a really underrated skill. Yeah, that's true. And I, you know, I want to give Daniel Cormier some credit for showing up to the post fight press conference and saying that he laid an egg in that fight. You know, he he attributed it to the nerves of making his UFC debut, and and he, he admitted that you know he had laughed at, at before when he'd heard Dana White talking about the UFC jitters, and he was thinking, look. You know, I was an Olympic wrestling team captain. I've been in some some pretty big athletic competitions in my career. I think I can handle going in there and, and fighting some dude in the co-main event in the HP Pavilion. Uh, and then it kind of got to him a little bit. And I think that happens to some guys. They they build it up in their mind. Hey, it's your UFC debut. It's a big deal. Uh, you got to go out there and look good. And that maybe, you know, the nerves took a little bit something out of him. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see how he does in his next fight to know, because you only get to really use that excuse once. Uh, but I appreciate him admitting that he didn't think it was a great performance on his part and at least offering up some kind of a reason why. Because uh, I think a lot of guys in that situation would have been tempted to be like, hey, fuck you guys. I just beat Frank Mir and beat him pretty clearly. So everybody get off my back about it. Right, which I think would be a perfectly appropriate response. Let's let's give Frank Mir a little bit of credit too. You know, he's a guy who 
who's coming off the loss to Junior Dos Santos, has suffered a couple of very high-profile losses in his career the last couple of years. You know, one to Shane Carwin, one to Brock Lesnar. Don't forget uh, about his low testosterone. He's somehow battled through that. Yeah, he's he's overcome the adversity of his yeah. low testosterone. I mean, hey, you, you look at him with his shirt off. You'd never guess that there was a man with chronically low, abnormally low testosterone. No, levels. you wouldn't. And, and you'd never guess it at all. He's a guy who is definitely uh, had a lot of fluctuation in his weight. Over hmm. the years, remember the first time that that uh, that he he well he he fought Brock Lesnar at UFC 81 and beat him, and then fought him again at UFC 100 and lost. And then I think was the point where he got really enormous for a while because he felt like he had been out muscled by Brock Lesnar. So he he got really really huge. And, and I think he in order a, to uh, assuage our our suspicions that maybe there was something going on there, he was like, "Hey, I'm not on steroids. I I just have this guy who's my trainer who's a former world's strongest man competitor." As if that is the right <laughs> thing to say to people who think you might be using performance enhancers. I remember him also saying that he just he had one of those bodies where all he had to do was look at some weights and he packed on the pounds, uh, which is, you know, not what you'd expect to happen to a guy with abnormally low testosterone. And then, you know, after he got really huge, but I think then still lost to Shane Carwin, then he went through this phase where he got really small and he, you know, we talked about, or he talked about maybe even going to light heavyweight and, and it turned out maybe he couldn't get all the way down. So he kind of settled in this mid range, uh, heavyweight area where I think he weighed in at 257 for this fight. But I wanted to give him some credit just because I think these high profile losses have, have made us think that maybe he was done in the past few years. And he, he did a lot of stuff to, I think, try to, uh, really revitalize his career. Yeah, and, he went to Jackson's and he went and... to Greg Jackson's camp and like clearly worked really hard to try to get ready for this fight. And I didn't think he looked terrible. He just didn't look good enough to beat Daniel Cormier. But there's another one where Dana made this point after the press conference. And I think it's a valid point where, He's in the third round of that fight. He's got to know he's down two to nothing, right? He's got to. There's just no way that he doesn't think that, that Daniel Cormier won both those rounds. You look at him in that third round and you don't see a guy who's just like, fuck it. I'm throwing everything I got out there. Uh, you know, I might as well. You see a guy who's like maybe thinking, well, hey, if I make it to decision, I don't know. That's not so bad. I'll take that. Yeah, I I feel like, though, that expecting a heavyweight who's lost two rounds to suddenly come out and do something really explosive is one of those things that makes me make a joke about dudes who've never seen heavyweight fights before, because <laughs> that shit just ain't happening. Fair enough. Well, let's talk a little bit about Daniel Cormier's future before we wrap this up. Uh, it seems kind of up in the air right now what he's going to do. My inkling is that he goes to 205, because I think that he probably doesn't want to fight Cain Velasquez unless he absolutely has to. I think that's kind of a shame, because I feel like a fight between Daniel Cormier and Cain Velasquez would be fascinating. Yeah. But uh, he, he's got the skills to, I think, be really successful in either weight class, no matter which one he chooses. Uh, would he be good enough to beat John Jones? Eh, don't know. Don't know about that. But he he uh, he could definitely beat a lot of light heavyweight contenders, I think. You know, the thing I think about it, after watching him in the, in the Frank Mir fight is if you go to light heavyweight, it seems like you you maybe lose some of your quickness advantage. I mean, that was one of the things he really had over Frank Mir. He was a lot faster than Frank was. And you lose some of that a little bit if you go down to light heavyweight, and you're still going to be shorter than most of the guys at light heavyweight. I mean, Cormier, I think Cormier is listed at like 5'11", and that's generous, I think. Yeah. Uh, that's some high school football program stuff. Uh, I think, you know, you go down there and you're fighting the – 6-3 and 6-2 and dudes at, at 205, you're still going to be giving up that same like length and, and reach there. Maybe he feels like his punching power uh, will be even more dangerous against those guys. I don't know. I mean, if, if, if it's just to avoid a potential fight with Cain Velasquez, I don't know how much sense that makes because we've seen how difficult it is to hold on to the heavyweight title in the UFC. Who knows how long Cain Velasquez is going to be champion. He's probably going to get past Bigfoot Silva based on just, you know, recent history words you will eat my friend <laughs> uh but I, if you're just going down and wait because you think you know you don't want to fight your friend you might want to reconsider it. if you're going down there because you think that that's where you're going to be a lot better and you're going to have a, a better shot at uh you know being the number one guy okay let's let's see how it works out but uh you know he's going to have to come with something better than he came with frank Mir. that wouldn't do it against john jones yeah i think i agree with you uh 
either way, though, I'm excited to see what he does. I think he's one of the more interesting prospects that Definitely. come into the UFC right now. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll get started with round number three. Are You Fucking Kidding Me? The most self-explanatory part of the co-main event podcast. Ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me? has to do with uh, production values, which doesn't seem like the most exciting thing in the world. But ah, sexy. Yeah. Whenever I watch a UFC broadcast, I come away feeling like their production values are so good. It always looks good. It always sounds good, especially when they're on Fox and they have, you know, these really good pre-fight vignettes that are of very high quality. Uh, and this, this past week, we saw them use that low angle camera that was in the mat that made Yoel Romero's flying knee on Clifford Starks look like some shit out of the Matrix. And it, it, it always impresses me. And then I feel like every week they do one thing that makes me think, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you doing this? And this past week, it was the decision to put Ronda Rousey's torso in like a weird community access television quality cell phone graphic while she did a an interview with Mike Goldberg. She's in the same building as Mike Goldberg. <laughs> and they're putting this graphic up there trying to make it look like Ronda Rousey and Mike Goldberg are like doing FaceTime or video chatting or something when she's clearly just standing in the next room in front of a Metro PCS banner. So for that, I have to say... Are you fucking kidding me, weird fucking Metro PCS me? cell phone graphic? But everyone's moving to Metro, Chad. I've heard that. It's not because of the graphics, though. Well, hey, maybe the message here is that if you move to Metro, the people who you're in the same building with will now feel like they're on you know, some kind of grainy satellite feed uh, from space. Well, that's awesome. That would definitely do the trick for me. Yeah. My Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week, it really goes out to... A concept, and I don't mean to, to single Benson Henderson out for this, but my are you fucking kidding me goes out to the concept of public marriage proposals. You see, this, the marriage proposal thing, that's a private thing. I feel like anytime you intentionally do it in public, like when you know there's a camera on you or like you had a baseball game or, uh, Chad, if I'm not mistaken, you and your wife got engaged at a monster truck rally, uh, oh, yeah, is that on the Jumbotron. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just both of you just shit faced. Oh, hammered. We yeah. wouldn't have done it if we were sober. <laughs> yeah. But I just feel like when you intentionally go out to make this private moment public, a, it kind of puts the rest of us in this weird situation where we feel like obligated to shut up and pay attention to what you're doing and act like we're really concerned with your romantic life. And B, it's unfair to the person you're proposing to because how are they going to say no? You're not even giving them a fair shot at this. Like, get engaged the way everybody else does when you know you buy a box of wine and have just watched a teen mom marathon and you're both sitting there on the couch at midnight and you realize you're never going to find anyone better for you than this person uh and you figure screw it let's 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 just do the damn thing i feel like that story is autobiographical on your part you can't prove that i'm saying public marriage proposals especially when a bunch of people are booing throughout your entire proposal you fucking kidding me? You think that's yeah, a good idea? Are you fucking kidding me? Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We're going to get started right away with round number three. question to open round number three, Ben, is whether or not you think that the decision by the UFC to have John Jones defend his light heavyweight title against middleweight Chael Sonnen has kind of backfired on the fight company. It really felt like the UFC thought that this fight would get a lot of hype and gain a lot of momentum simply because, I guess, Chael is Chael. And there would be this added factor that John Jones refused to fight him you know, months ago, just prior to the cancellation of UFC 151. And I think that they thought there would be a lot of heat there. And it really, there hasn't been. I feel like for the most part, at least hardcore fans of the sport have seen through this one and responded appropriately, I think, as though this is kind of a farce. 
Do you agree with that? Do you think that this decision to book this fight hasn't quite worked out the way the UFC wanted? I do agree with that. I think one of the things that really backfired on them was having them coach against each other on the Ultimate Fighter. Because it seemed like when John Jones and JL Sonnen got together... They find out that they kind of like each other. Yeah, man. A couple of wrestlers. Yeah. They probably have a lot of the same interests. They could both get together and talk about Mitt Romney or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh yeah, I'm not surprised at all that those two guys, once their public persona was was squashed, would kind of get together and, and realize they had they had a lot in common. I think that's one of the things that really killed any heat that this might have generated back when it, you know you had the whole John Jones refuses to fight Chael Sonnen thing. If anything, it's starting to come back a little now that the UFC tries to throw them into these forced like interview situations to build it up and John Jones is just not even playing with Chael Sonnen at that point. I do though think that it's not like it's not generating any hype at all, I mean, John, there's an article about John Jones in the New York Times this weekend. Uh, they're gonna be on ESPN, I think tomorrow, uh, plugging away at this one. I mean, I think the, the UFC, kinda to the detriment of the UFC on Fox event, has focused on pumping up this pay-per-view. Um, because they know, you know, John Jones and Chelsea Sonnen that, that should, in theory, equal a lot of pay-per-view buys. But fight fans aren't dumb. I mean, they can look at that one and see that this is, Everything everybody is talking about here is, will Chell Sonnen do better against John Jones than the <laughs> other people who John Jones has beat the shit out of? Yeah. Will he, will he get the shit beat out of him in a new and interesting way? Or, you know, will he, will he force John Jones to, to beat the shit out of him in the later rounds? Uh, I don't hear a whole lot of people talking about how Chell Sonnen's gonna win this. You have to assume that this is the end. The denouement, so to speak. For Chael Sonnen. Like, this shit ain't gonna work again, right? We've already seen him. <laughs> I didn't think it would work this time. No, I know, right? We already saw him talk his way essentially into a second fight with Anderson Silva. And after that, talk his way into this fight with John Jones. This is the end of the line. This is most certainly his last UFC title shot. And you would think his last real opportunity to, uh, above and beyond his station, really, talk his way into one of these really, really high-profile fights. You don't think he's gonna, he can lose this one and then talk his way into a title fight with new UFC heavyweight champion Bigfoot Silva? Well, I hadn't considered that as an option now that you bring it up. Hell, I don't know, maybe. I mean, the dude steps up, right? We've yeah. been led to believe he steps up. Really, though, I feel like we have to give Chael, if this is the end for him, if this is as far as it goes, as far as the... uh superstar Billy Graham persona can carry him. I think we got to give the guy credit, which we have done before on the podcast, but I feel like it, it, it serves to be repeated because this is a dude who four, five or six years ago looked like his career was really winding down. And, you know, he'd already washed out of the UFC once. He'd never been that consistent of a fighter. His story of in his career was always win a couple, lose one, win a couple, lose one. And it seemed like he was destined to be the guy, finish up his career, I guess, as one of those guys who was like the best guy on the independent circuit. Because he was fighting in Bodog, he was fighting in Sport Fight, and it seemed like that was going to be kind of the story of his career. Then, out of nowhere, his his run in the WEC essentially beyond his control, really, kind of set up perfectly with the whole Paulo Filo fiasco and set the stage for him to enter into the UFC where he suddenly, like catching lightning in a bottle, became this sort of model of consistency that 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 won three fights in a row and steamrolled his way into this feud with Anderson Silva. And for me, I think better than we ever could have expected for this guy. Yeah, and you know, it reminds me too that do you remember before the first Anderson Silva fight, uh, where it was kind of just like perfect timing, the perfect opportunity that he seized with, with the, the whole, uh, pro wrestling personality kind of thing he was doing was that it was coming at the time when Anderson Silva had those just weird fights where he seemed totally disinterested and yet still totally way better than everybody he was fighting. Um, and the promise of Chael Sonnen back then, was that, well, Chael Sonnen is going to at least force Anderson Silva to do something memorable to him. Uh, something just 
violent and horrific that will be worth paying for. Like that was the promise. Like every, I remember being, you know, in the Bay Area for that, for the lead up to that fight where Chelsea was really turning up the dial on it, you know, at the press conference and everything. And everybody, it was a, a chuckle at his antics followed by, Oh man, is he in trouble on Saturday night? That was how it looked. And then that he actually went out there, uh, and, you know, beat up Anderson Silva for four and a half rounds just made it even more incredible. Uh, so it, it feels like it's the same kind of thing here where people are like, well, the best you can hope for is that he does better than some of the other guys that John Jones has beaten up and that, that maybe, you know, he will be obnoxious enough that John Jones will really want to like do some crazy spinning shit that we've never seen from him before. And that's kind of the way the UFC is trying to push it. How Dana White, John Jones won't really do much trash talk before this fight. And so Dana White is going out and telling him, well, listen, I, I talked to him and he told me that he's never wanted to hurt a guy as bad as he wants to hurt Jail Sonnen. <laughs> uh, so, Hey, trust me, he's really going out there. He really wants to hurt. Like it tells you something when that is, that's how you have to pitch it as well. Hey, this is one where the champ really wants to hurt the guy. And obviously he can because we all acknowledge that he is way better than the dude that he is fighting. It's not like, well, man, this is going to be a battle because these guys are so evenly matched or style wise. They match up so well. So this is going to be a really super competitive, interesting fight. Like nobody's even trying that. Right. But he doesn't have, I mean, do you think he has a prayer of repeating that performance where he went out against Anderson Silva and got in his face and pressured him, took him down a bunch, uh, kind of rough necked him? So to speak, <laughs> roughneck him. He's not going to be able to do that. To Put John your hands Jones, on him, right? Because even if he finds some success with his takedowns, which I think is Chael Sonnen's only prayer at this point, is that somehow, some way, it turns out that his double leg shot, which is one of the best in MMA, is somehow good enough to actually take John Jones down. Otherwise, he just gets destroyed on the feet, right? And he, but if he, even if that works, even if he can take him down and surprise him. He has to finish him because you can't give John Jones five tries, right? <laughs> yeah. Against Chael Sonnen. That's just not going to turn out good for, for Chael. I, I can't imagine. I, if he had any chance to just win with takedowns, it would have been if he could have convinced John Jones to take that fight, uh, without having any chance to study up on him and without having any chance to have, you know, Greg Jackson go study some film and, and, craft a plan for him there because that's just not going to work uh you're right for five rounds and uh, when you're trying to do that against the guy that that's that that's that much bigger than you are uh that you know even if you take him down and you end up in his guard i'm not so sure that you're in a great position uh i, I don't think you're just going to be able to stay there and and work ground and pound from the top for five rounds uh that i just there's no way i see that happening uh so that i mean in this sport sure you always have have a chance. The sport is so goddamn crazy that who knows what the hell could happen. You can't rule Chael Sonnen out completely. Uh, but, I mean, even when they're doing that weird little stand-up interview during the tough finale, Chael Sonnen is talking about how he might go down, but he's going to go down like a gangster. And it's like, yeah. if that's the promise you, selling it. You, that, you, selling that you have to sell us on, you're basically admitting that the fight is kind of a farce. Right. Okay, one word answer. Best or worst thing that can happen, Chael Sonnen wins the title. Best or worst thing for who? In general, one word. Can can it be somewhere in the middle? No, one word. I'd say worst. Uh, then I guess I'll say best. All right, you're an asshole. Just, Let's just do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, just saying stuff. The part of the show where Ben and I both make statements that we are then not asked to back up or defend in any way because we are, in fact, just two guys sitting in a room just saying stuff. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? I'm just saying, and I wrote about this a little bit in my post-fight column for today. The resurgence of Matt Brown, I think, really proves that maybe the UFC in the past has been too quick to just cut motherfuckers as soon as they lose a few fights. Matt Brown lost three in a row, then won one, you know, not super impressively, and then lost another one. He lost four of five at one point. The UFC did not cut him. At the time, a lot of people said, what the hell? What does Matt Brown have on you guys that you won't do the same to him as you've done to other people? And now look at him. He, he, he knocked out Mike Swick on the last Fox card he was on. Uh, then he came out here and stopped Jordan, My, Jordan, My, Mian? Yeah, Mian, Mian or Mian. Jordan Mian? Mian, uh, Mian. Mian. Let's go, yeah. Mian. Uh, stopped his hype train cold, knocked his mouthpiece out of his damn mouth at one point, looked awesome in that fight. Kind of proves, hey, maybe if you give a guy a chance to work through some rough spots, 
he he'll come back strong. Maybe he doesn't have to go, you know, have this vote of no confidence in him and and go win some and and some small show in Dayton in order to to get his act together. Maybe if you give a guy a chance and have some faith in him, he'll prove that uh, just because you lose a few doesn't mean you totally suck. I'm just saying. Just saying. Love watching shows at the Dayton Pavilion. Brings back memories. <laughs> this week, I'm just saying that in retrospect, I can't decide if it makes Strike Force seem better or even more inept now that so many Strike Force Strike Force fighters are coming into the UFC and doing awesome stuff. Even when they're not winning, Strike Force fighters are having a huge impact on the UFC right now. I mean, you've got the obvious ones like Ronda Rousey, Gilbert Melendez, Daniel Cormier. This weekend you saw Josh Thompson, you saw Yoel Romero. A couple months ago you saw Robbie Lawler come in and do awesome shit to uh, Josh Koscheck. Uh, even when they're losing, like Jordan Meehan, Mine? they still don't yeah. look terrible. Next weekend, you got Pat Healy on the card. You got Ovin St. Prue on the card. You got Gian Vellante on the card. Oh, you've been practicing that all day. I think I still mess it up. I think <laughs> it's just John Vellante. Uh, but it seems like Strike Force fighters are everywhere. So I'm just saying, I don't know if we owe Strike Force an apology for all the shitty stuff we said about them. Or if it just makes us want to grab Strike Force by the shoulders and shake them and be like, why couldn't you make this work? I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyway, that's going to do it this week. We'll be back next week to break down just exactly how bad John Jones did beat the shit out of Chael Sonnen. But for right now, we're done. We're through. We're out. You know what stops you from grabbing Strike Force by the shoulders and shaking it, don't you? It's, uh, it's an inanimate object. The crazy pyrotechnics that they love so much. <laughs> yeah, you can't even get close because of the heat. Because yeah, of the heat and the explosions. Yeah, I was thinking about this today, actually. How fucking glad you think Scott Copeland is that he doesn't have to fucking have a beat to